Stella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, guys, to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast. The Core 4 is a podcast under SB Nation's Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network. Find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcast. Grizzly Bear Blues is also a blog under SB Nation. Find them on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is my co-host, Nathan, the champion, Chester. Nate, what up? You know, I've been better. Uh, it's been a little bit of a rough week. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. You want to know why? Uh, I'm scared, but sure. You don't, you don't sound very interested in my life. I'm a little bit offended here. Let me hear it. Well, it all started when um, I think it was back this past Monday night and I was playing a game of pickup basketball, right? You know, just something that everybody loves to do, including you and me. And so I'm playing with one of my fraternity brothers. His name is Hunter. And I'm guarding him one-on-one, you know, putting putting the clamps down like a true champion should. And he drove into me and my left shoulder hit his chest at just the wrong angle. And now I can barely raise my left arm. Which doesn't sound very ideal. That's a very, very tough scene, as the kids say. Nate, I hope you feel better. I I hope I do, too. And you know what? You want to know what else? What's up? I feel like a bad blogger and a bad podcaster. Well, yeah. Why? Because I didn't watch the Grizzlies game last night, and I went to the Memphis SMU football game, which was phenomenal. But I feel like I skipped out on my job, you know? It's not a good feeling. Eh. I mean, hey, that makes two of us. I was at a uh, cancer proceeds dinner last night, so I, too, was not able to watch the game. I mean, I'd say that's kind of an acceptable excuse right there. There's hardly a better way to be spending your time, probably. (laughs) through but anyway so as we all know grizzlies lost to the phoenix suns who actually look like a competent basketball team maybe yep yo do you know who aaron baines is playing like right now who's he playing like mark gasol which version (laughs) probably the fizzdale one i mean he's averaging like 15 8 and 3 and he's shooting 40% from three on four attempts a game. Honestly, it is so good to see him doing so well because you remember what he was known for early in his career, right? Looking like Braun Strowman from WWE. Well, that, but he's the guy who got dunked on by Blake Griffin twice. Was it twice in the same game or twice in the same playoff series? I want to say it's the uh, 2015 quarterfinals, Clippers versus Spurs. Maybe. I mean, yeah, probably. He was, he was I mean, a running. It's also a, it's also a uh, tough scene for Boston because they got rid of their best center for a bag of peanuts. 
all to sign Enos Cantor. Yep. Along with the Aaron Baines and the Phoenix Suns, Devin Booker is shooting well from three, shooting about 43% from when last time I saw. And then Kelly Oubre looks legit. It makes me cry every time, but he looks like a legit starting three that can actually like start on a good team. Oh, for sure. I mean, he was kind of playing that role for the Wizards, even though the Wizards haven't exactly been up to snuff for the last two years. But depending on how you view the Grizzlies' salary cap situation, um, you know, I was personally on the team of do everything you possibly can to acquire Buddy Hill this coming summer. And you, among others, disagreed with that because you think it's more wise and frugal for a rebuilding team like the Grizzlies to have as much cap space and uh, take on bad contracts and other assets through using that cap space, which is a it's not even something I really even disagree with. It's a very good approach for a young rebuilding team in the NBA. But I think we could both agree that they could have um, used the cap space to sign. It's going to be this coming summer that uh, Kelly Oubre will be a restricted free agent. And no, was it this past summer? Yeah, he was a free agent this past okay. summer. He signed a two-year, $30 million deal with Phoenix. Yeah, with that in mind, the Grizzlies should have absolutely traded Dylan Brooks. I know they thought they were trading Marshawn Brooks, but even if it was Dylan, you should have gone back and made that trade in retrospect. I mean, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I mean, it happens. You you win some, you lose some. But on vision the top, is history. On the topic of Devin Booker shooting, since you mentioned it. One of the boons of the Phoenix Suns actually having a legitimate top 15 starting point guard for the first time in years. Devin Booker was the primary ball handler more often than not for the Phoenix Suns last year, and his shooting suffered because of it. He shot 32% from three. With Ricky Rubio as the Suns starting point guard, Booker is shooting 47% from three through five games. Yep. Has this has this been their issue for the last couple of years? Because even last year, I remember they played the Mavericks in the first game of the season, and uh, you know the offense looked great. Everyone was saying it's going to be Aiton versus Doncic for Rookie of the Year. The Suns have an outside shot at the playoffs, and then they collapse like they always do, and they're competing for one of the top spots in the lottery, the Tankathon. Um, was it just a real point guard that they were lacking all these years? It wasn't a losing culture. It wasn't bad ownership. It wasn't bad management. They just didn't have a point guard. I mean, that's what I think. I mean, you're not going to win any basketball games with guys like Isaiah Cannon or Shaquille Harrison as your starting point guard. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and so one thing I do want to talk about is um, Jaron Jackson Jr. He got hurt last night. Very unfortunate. It shouldn't be too serious. The Grizzlies PR just put out a uh, injury report for tomorrow's game. And Jaron Jackson Jr. is doubtful with knee soreness, which it's a tough blow. But it's been a really weird stretch for Jaron to start this season. He had that 20-10 and 10 game against Chicago in the first home game. But every every other game, he's really kind of looked like last year's Jaron Jackson Jr., which I think we may have 
placed too high of expectations on Jaron Jackson Jr. to go out and average 22, 8, and 3, 1, and 2. That might have been the case that we just raised the bar a little too high. Granted, I still think he can be a 17, 7, 2, and 2 guy easily. But do you think we kind of just raised the bar too high and it's causing people to kind of question Jaron's standing as a future star? I think we absolutely did. I I think I've had to do a little bit of reflection on my own expectations. And I think something that we vastly underestimated was Jaron missing the last, what was it, 30, 35 games this past year. Because not only has he still not played a full NBA season, like he's a rookie still by the games he's played, he was also going to be a more featured option in the offense after the Marcus Saul trade. And that was going to be huge for his development. And arguably, that was going to be more important for his development than the first half of the season was when he was the third-ish, fourth option behind Mike Conley and Marcus Saul. So he missed a very important part of his development at the end of his rookie year. And now you're kind of seeing him being put into more of a featured role. And he really hasn't had any experience in it yet. And it's showing. He doesn't. He's still finding himself. And it, Joe Joe Mullinax wrote a very good piece um, earlier this week about showing patience with the young core of the Memphis Grizzlies. And that was something that I kind of had to take to heart because I could tell myself all day long that it's not about wins and losses. Um, but still, it's frustrating when you compete hard in the second half, you see the team doing well, and then they let go of the rope in the third or fourth quarter like they have for most of the games this year, with the one exception being the Brooklyn game. But I will say, with that type of patience in mind, it has been very frustrating, and not frustrating in the sense that you've seen Jaron and John ja make mistakes. My frustration is very correctable, Jaron needs to be more featured on the offensive end than he has been. It would be one thing if he was struggling to find himself in that role, which he has, but we were kind of led to believe that it's all about Jaron and Ja, Ja and Jaron, Jaron and Ja, and the Grizzlies are going to go as they go, and they're going to grow and develop around those two guys, but really... It's been more Ja, Dylan, and Clark, and then Jaron is pretty much an afterthought when he's on the court. And I watched a few clips from last night, and I believe the Suns started Sarge and Baines, right? Yeah. Yeah, so Jaron has Baines defending him. Now, Baines is a good defender. You may look at him and think that he wasn't, but there's a reason why the Celtics called him the Embiid stopper. Like There was no defender in the East that frustrated Joel Embiid more than Aaron Baines. But you're telling me you're not going to run some isolation sets for Jaron from the three-point line as if Baines could stay in front of him, which is not really something that Embiid can do. That's not really a featured part of his game. That just We just haven't seen him be featured in the way we all thought he was going to be. And I know it's five games in. I know it's early, and I know that'll probably change, but that has been frustrating to watch. You've got this unicorn-like big man, and you're not using him like one so far. Well, yeah, all right. it's been five games. They're still putting in a new offensive system. I also do think what you had pointed out earlier 
He's never been a featured guy before, and that even goes back to his days at Michigan State. He was never featured that well at Michigan State. So this is a transition for him. I think one thing he does need to learn to do is kind of like that dynamic that Mike Conley had with Zach and Mark over the years, and one that we should expect John John Jaron to have going forward, is Jaron just needs to say, hey, get me the freaking ball. Yeah, I have Aaron Baines on me on the perimeter or get me the ball in the post. I have a switch on me where I have a 6'5", 220 guy on me. He does need to be a little more assertive asking for the ball. Yeah. And they're still working out those kinks and stuff. Really, the whole offense needs to be let jaw work, get the, get a little bit of Jaron pick and pop in there as well. So, I mean, Jaron's a good shooter. He's a great perimeter player for a guy his size. And I know one thing he did a lot in that Chicago game was he would use his ball handling to take guys off the dribble, but then he would use his body to, once he gets good position, he gets into a post-up spot, two hard back ends, layup. That should be what Jaron's focusing on throughout. Yeah, and we can take encouragement from that, that the issue is not that, okay, Jaron looked really skilled last year, but he's kind of struggling in the same spots against tougher defenders. Now, when they've been giving him the ball for three-point line, he hasn't been shooting particularly well, but he looks as fluid as ever. He's beating people off the dribble, getting to his spots. His footwork and low post skills look even better than they were last year. His ball handling in particular looks fantastic um, for a power forward his size, but whether it's him being more assertive and demanding the ball, like you said, which at some point he has to do, no matter how the flow of the offense is going, Jaron has got to put his foot down and say, I am the best player on the court. Give me the ball. And Job will give him the ball. Um, but it's also Jenkins. Uh, you've got to make him more of a priority on the offensive end. And I also think there's another culprit involved with that and Jaron not getting the ball as much as he should. Who's a player that Jaron spends a lot of time with on the court that is not John Morant? Uh, Jay Crowder, Dylan Brooks, probably those two guys, really. So Dylan Brooks took seven more shots than Jaron did last night in Phoenix. Now, granted, um, Jaron left with the knee problem in the third quarter, but he still played 24 minutes. And Dylan, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but Dylan has definitely taken more shots, a sound amount of more shots than Jaron has this year. I told you about the analogy I wanted to make for you. Um, Let's go back to the Minnesota Timberwolves in the early 2000s. Dylan Brooks taking more shots than Jaron Jackson in a game would be like Wally Zerbiak taking more shots than Kevin Garnett. Or, or if you want to go back to Anthony Davis's second year with the New Orleans Pelicans, that would be like Darius Miller taking more shots than Anthony Davis. That just can't happen. And Dylan has been fine this year. We both have been defenders of him. We have our frustrations with him. We don't like his shot selection. Um, he's too much of a gunner for my taste. I wish he would round out his game kind of in the same vein that he did during his rookie year. Um, But you have to wonder at a certain point that every possession that Dylan Brooks is taking a long step back to is another possession that Jaron could have had the ball at the three-point line and been making a move into the paint. So maybe even though the on-off numbers for the starting lineup and the bench are good, 
and like you said, it's when those two lineups start to mix and match that the game starts to go awry. It may be worth seeing how Dylan does coming off the bench because I think he's taking away from Jared. I could probably agree with that. It's just at this point right now, I think there's not a shooting guard on the roster right now that's playing better than Dylan. From what I'm looking at his game log right now, his only negative plus minus game was against Miami in the opener, and it was a minus 16. But he's been, he was a neutral against Chicago, plus one against Brooklyn, plus 13 against the Lakers, and they lost by 29 in that game. And he was a plus 13 against Phoenix as well. And like you mentioned, his shot selection is not the best. He, to put into context, he is shooting 45% from three on four attempts a game. And then his field goal percentage is 41 and a half. So he's shooting under 40% on two-point attempts while also taking more two-pointers than he is threes. And so he really just needs to play more like – trying to think of a good comparison. He needs to play more like Wesley Matthews instead of playing like Andrew Wiggins. If that makes sense. I agree. And I think it all comes down to knowing your role. And Dylan is a guy who I think looks around at the other faces on the roster and says, um, I'm one of the oldest guys, the second oldest, that third oldest behind Kyle Anderson. He's the third oldest guy on the team. He has more veteran experience than most of the guys on this roster. So I don't think he thinks to himself, this is my team, but he thinks I can't be passive. I have to set the example, but you don't set the example by playing like Andrew Wiggins. You set the example by understanding what your role is and helping to build another guy in your starting lineup that will be a perennial all-star for your team at some point. And you got to understand your limitations. He's been fine this year. He really has. But if the Grizzlies are going to be all that they can be for this year, no matter what that looks like, Dylan's going to have to learn to take a little bit of a backseat. Right. And also another thing too, going back to the Jaron conversation, one thing that's killing his role in the offense and also just his offensive efficiency in general is something you've harped on. It's his fouls because he picks up two quick fouls. He gets out of the game. He's unable to really get into the flow and the rhythm of a game because he's fouling too much. Granted, some of it is the refs, the refs having a little bit too Quick of a whistle, but also at the same time, you're averaging four and a half fouls a game. Like, it's not just the refs. And granted, he's 20 years old. He's the youngest guy on the roster. And most shot blocking big men have had a history of being a little happy as far as trying to get those block shots. So it'll come with time to where those foul numbers will start to go down. But that is one thing that's killing his role offensively is the fouling because he's unable to get into a rhythm at all. I think the biggest frustration that I have about his fouls is that, um, you know, I I think it's obviously a bigger issue than most people do. Um, He led the league in fouls per game last year, despite the fact he only played 27 minutes per game. And when you take both of his preseasons, you take um, this past season and this season into account, Um, by any statistical measure, when you compare him to the long list, 
He is one of the worst fathers in NBA history so far into his career. But again, like I'm torn on it. He's still, like you said, the youngest guy on the team. He's 20 years old and he'll figure it out. But going beyond just his offensive impact, which I – anybody, any casual fan watching a game or who's ever played pickup before knows that if you don't play for however long, if you don't play for an extended period of time, you're not going to be able to find a rhythm once you get back into the game. Of course, you're not going to be able to. And you're also not in the game enough to be able to get any type of meaningful stats or anything of that nature. But my frustration is, is that he's his defensive impact when he's on the court does not warrant the amount of fouls that he's given. Mitchell Robinson is another player in the league who struggles with fouls, and he's not far behind Jackson as far as foul rates. But Mitchell Robinson averaged three blocks a game in less minutes than Jackson played last year. And Jaron, for as good of a defender that he is, he has not really shown the ability to be an elite shot blocker. I think he can get there. But that's not something the numbers have reflected so far into this career. So if he was just, if it was just a complete lack of discipline and he was just leaping everywhere and blocking everything but fouling everyone in the process, I would have a little more patience with it. But a lot of it is not over aggressiveness necessarily, it's just dumb stuff. And granted, he's had a lot of bad luck from a very tight whistle from the ref. I'll never forget in the Lakers game, he comes into the third quarter with four fouls. Um, the Laker, uh, the Grizzlies miss a shot. Anthony Davis jumps up to grab it. Anthony Davis grabs the rebound, comes down, starts to take off, and like the back heel of his foot trips over Jaron, and Jaron gets called for his fifth foul and comes out of the game. And it was at that point that I thought, maybe Jaron isn't young. Maybe he's just cursed. But um, he's got to figure this out. Um, there's really no other way to put it. And he's young. I believe that he will figure it out. He's simply too talented not to. But the other areas of his game, which – you could always, especially for a guy as young as he is, you could always be growing, always being developing. You can't do that when you're not on the court. And good, high, like bad foul rates are not necessarily a bad indicator for young big man. It usually denotes a high level of aggressiveness and a high level of defensive potential, much in the same way that high turnover numbers for young point guards are generally a good indication for their long-term outlook. Russell Westbrook's one example. John Moran is another example. But Jaron wants to improve in all the aspects of his game. He's got to be on the court to be able to do it. Because Ja will eventually get his turnover numbers down, and Ja will eventually be a better floor general than he's been so far. But Ja gets to be on the court to work on those things. So this is something that Jaron's got to figure out sooner rather than later. Yep, and I believe he will. And so we're going to take a quick ad break, but we will get back to you on the other side. All right, Nate. So the Grizzlies play the Houston Rockets. As we record, it's tomorrow. So when they hear this, it'll be today. And for one... Jaron Jackson Jr., like we said earlier in the show, is doubtful with knee soreness. Grayson Allen will also be out with an ankle injury. But we're also getting robbed of something I really, really wanted to see. Yep. Because 
Russell Westbrook, as reported, may sit out due to load management tomorrow night because it'd be a second game off a of bat-to-back. So we may not be able to get the Jaw versus Russ look. That is true, and that's something I think Ja in particular was definitely looking forward to because Ja had said that Westbrook's his favorite player. But as far as the actual game itself, what are we putting the over-under on the amount of points that Harden will score tomorrow night? I'm going to say about 52. I mean, if you're setting an like you're setting the over and under at fifty two, <laughs> I think that poorly of Memphis's wing defenders. I mean, I'm just still taking the under. Actually, if Russ isn't playing, I will go over. It, well, that, that's that's the thought process I had. West uh, Westbrook's not going to be on the court, so and he, I'm sure the ball. I haven't looked at the usage numbers, but I'm sure the ball has been in Harden's hands more than it's been on, in Westbrook's hands and they're both on the court together. But yeah, without Russ on the court, it's not looking good. <laughs> yeah, but it would have been like a nice little measuring stick for John Morant as this is his most popular player comp. And the last time that he got to play against an all-star point guard, he put up 30 and nine. So yeah. it would be really cool to see if Ja could just like rise up to the challenge again and just show out against one of the league's best point guards. But yeah. we may get robbed of that, and I'm kind of sad about it. It's really a shame that Jaron is missing this game, too, because I have not paid much attention to the Rockets' starting lineups in the five games, but I assume they're, still, they're starting P.J. Tucker at the four. Yeah, their starting five has been Russ, Harden, Daniel House, P.J. Tucker, and Clint Capella. So they moved Eric Gordon to the bench, which I think is a perfect role for him. And I think Daniel House is a really good starting small forward for that system. Yeah. So tomorrow night, we should probably be seeing a Brandon Clark versus P.J. Tucker matchup. And that's something I'm really looking forward to. I feel like offensively, they're the inverse of each other. P.J. Tucker gets a lot of his looks from three, whereas Brandon Clark is more of a inside the arc about three to 10 feet from the basket kind of guy, but they both offer insane defensive versatility, especially for guys, their size and PJ Tucker without shoes is about six foot five, but he's been able to defend all five positions pretty well since his arrival in Houston. And that's what you're hoping for with Brandon Clark too, because he's already shown that he can handle some five, even though he's six, eight with a six, eight wingspan, he's 220 pounds. So that's a matchup I'm actually really looking forward to just because they both have similar defensive skill sets. And I think, honestly, if Brandon Clark is a supercharged P.J. Tucker defensively, that's pretty awesome alongside guys like Jaron Jackson Jr. and John Morant. Well, you could make a case that a supercharged P.J. Tucker is the best perimeter defender in the league because at least in the mind of Kevin Durant, um, he called P.J. Tucker one of the best perimeter defenders he's ever played against. So I like that comp. I do. And as fun as the uh, Clark-Tucker matchup is, um, part of the reason that being fun was why I was so looking forward to Jaron in this matchup. And I think that's frustrating for me because I saw the upcoming stretch of Phoenix and Houston, and Phoenix starts Dario Saric at the four. And Houston starts P.J. Tucker at the four. And Tucker, as good of a defender as he is, that's a matchup that Jaron Jackson could take advantage of because it'd be a little bit more difficult for Jaron to work on the perimeter with P.J. Tucker defending him. 
But Jaron is a legitimate seven foot, and Tucker six six without shoes on, roughly. Um, so that was a matchup he could have definitely taken advantage of. But it'll be a fun matchup with Clark and Clark. Clark has impressed me so much so far through these games, and you could easily make a case that he's been the Grizzlies' second best player through five games. Uh, or even the best player, if you want to take overall efficiency into account, I would just say it's job because of overall production. But Clark is everything that we thought he could be coming in as a rookie in the NBA. Um, defensively, so so versatile defensively. And he's been so versatile in his role that it really makes me question whether the Grizzlies could start experimenting with him at the three because he's shown to be more than capable of holding his own on the perimeter. Um, I believe he finished with three steals against Phoenix, which steals are not the only thing involved in perimeter defense, but he has just been so superb. Uh, flat uh, Showcasing the jump shot. Um, which is still a work in progress, but it's definitely going to come. The base is there. His shot is beautiful. Mechanics look great. Um, what Whoever he worked with to overhaul his mechanics in his final year at Gonzaga, his shot looks great. No hitch, anything, especially from the mid-range. It looks so nice. Um, he's a very good playmaker for his size and position. I, I'm very impressed. I think he is going to be a phenomenal player for years to come. <laughs> Absolutely. It's absolutely mind-boggling how there were 20 guys selected ahead of Brandon Clark, even though he put together one of the most efficient NCAA basketball seasons of all time. But also, too, like you mentioned, he's improving his jump shot. He also has he's playing the five. I think is mind-boggling how he's already handling playing the five, and he's doing it quite quite well. I'm looking at a lot of the Grizzlies lineups right now, and a lot of those positive lineups are with Clark at the five, which I didn't expect that to happen that quick. Me neither. He also he offers a lot, a lot of versatility defensively. I'm really just waiting to see. Like he's had a, like these games where like he'll shoot one three and he'll make it. Like let me see what he can do if he's shooting like four a game. Yeah, because I think that would just open up the entire offense even more than it already is right now. Oh yeah, and I agree. And it's we on the topic of it being mind-boggling how far he fell in the draft. Um, there's always a guy who you look back in a year or two and you're thinking, why in the world did he fall as far as he did? But it seemed ridiculous to anyone who was true from NBA Twitter, from NBA scouting Twitter. It looked ridiculous to everybody that he fell as far as he did. And it surprised me in particular that the Spurs let him go. I thought at least R.C. Buford or Greg Popovich would step in and say, this guy is a phenomenal basketball player. He's been that way his entire life. He'll continue to be so in the NBA. But to say his arms are too short – or something else that was said negatively about him in the draft process, there is not enough emphasis put on phenomenal college basketball players. Um, There's a place for upside, especially in the lottery, but NBA teams are entirely too enthralled with upside when there's a guy who not only is a phenomenal college basketball player, because there are plenty of good college basketball players that don't become good NBA players, but a guy who also flashes a skill set 
that will allow him to thrive in the modern NBA. And they take a guy like Brandon Clark and they pick out one random physical attribute and say, yeah, don't want him. It's mind boggling to me. I don't understand it. He should have pro- he should have gone in the top 10 of this summer's NBA draft. I completely agree. And guess what? I'm not going to complain because the Grizzlies are benefiting from it. Oh, they are. And take advantage of the ignorance of your opponents. But it's just crazy. It really is. Absolutely. And so what what is like one thing you're really looking forward to in this game? Because I know what I'm looking forward to the most. And that's to see Jonas Valanciunas' encore on Clint Capella. Because last that's year, didn't he that's, drop like... Yeah. That, that was the first thing that came to mind. Yeah. He dropped like 30 and 15 last year on him, right? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, so it's really... I'm going to be interested to see, for one, if they're going to feed Jonas and kind of capitalize on that mismatch. But also, too, I want to see how far they um, lift his minutes restriction, especially if Jaron Jackson Jr. is going to be sitting out tomorrow. I think it's time to take it off of him. And I think we had this debate during the playoffs last year, which the Grizzlies obviously weren't a part of. It was just that around that time, and I think we talked about it. But for anyone who's wondering – Jonas Valanciunas is a better player than Clint Capella. Is Clint Capella a very good rebounder? Yes. Is he a very good defender who can switch onto the perimeter? Yes. But Jonas Valanciunas, while he may not be a great defender either in the paint, even though he is a very good productive shot blocker, um, he may not be great at switching and picking rolls onto the perimeter, but he's a phenomenal rebounder in his own right, and he has dimensions to his offensive game that Clint Capella could never dream of having Clint Capella against the Golden State Warriors in the playoffs last year could barely even catch the ball in the paint. And the best thing that could happen when he did is he'd immediately kick it back out. Clint Capella is a very good player, a very good starting center in the NBA, but he is not as good as Jonas Valanciunas. Not at all. Frankly, it's not even that close. Retweet. Mm-hmm. And so we are about out of time here. Nate, do you have anything else to add before we go? Uh, Just a nice little stat that literally anybody with a brain could find just by looking at a box score. John Morant is averaging 23.3 points per game over his last three. So he's going to be – who's the Houston Rockets backup point guard off the top of your head? Austin Rivers. Austin Rivers. Yeah, Austin Rivers will play that role. So Austin Rivers, who's definitely never been known for his defensive acumen, I'd expect that trend to continue for John Morant tomorrow night since we're recording the day before. And one more thing, one more little topic to talk about, and this is something that's personally been somewhat surprising for me because I guess I just expected them to both come together. John has been far more advanced as a scorer than a playmaker so far through his first five games, which is not something I was expecting. Now, I – Expected him to average 18 points and eight assists. He's hovering around 19 points and five assists or six assists right now. And uh, part of that is because his teammates cannot make shots. Uh, not at all. Um, <laughs> they have definitely not helped him in that way. But to see him be as fluid as he has been, especially with his jump shot, which um, I believe he's shooting close to 40% from three. 
Let me look that up. That's going to bother me if I don't have that right in front of me. He's shooting like 42% from three. I haven't pulled up. That's a very good number. And um, considering that he shot 36% from three on about five attempts a game at Murray State last year, John Morant's a good shooter. It may take time for him to be able to learn how to increase his volume while maintaining his efficiency at the NBA level. But the biggest question mark about his game has really not been one so far, and that's very encouraging. And I think it's helped open up different dimensions of his offensive game. It's helped clear space for him to get to the rim and showcase his athleticism. And a lot of people were concerned about his finishing, despite how athletic and explosive he is. A lot of people were concerned about his finishing. He has shown excellent touch around the rim so far this year. So, really, he's going to the game. will start to slow down for him. He'll start to cut down the turnovers. John Morant has been everything the Grizzlies could have hoped for and expected for so far this season. Absolutely. And so follow the core four on Twitter at the core four podcast with the number four, not the word for follow, subscribe, like whatever the Grizzly Bear Blues podcast network on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcast. Follow Grizzly Bear Blues at SBN Grizzlies. Follow me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Nate Chester. Oh, nope. dang it. Every week. <laughs> what is it going to take for me to stop doing that? Changing it back. Well, I can't do that. I'm an adult now. Yep. So where, yeah, they, you, where can they find you now, Nate? They can find me on Twitter at Nathan Chester 24. All right. And Nate, I'll let you have the honors this time. That's all, folks.